Talkers. Welcome to Speak and Destroy, episode 15. Speak and Destroy is a podcast about all things Metallica. I'm your host, Ryan J. Downing. My guest this episode is Alex Skolnick, legendary guitarist of Testament. I have a strong memory of the first time I saw Testament on Headbangers Ball. I captured the video for Trial by Fire on VHS and would rewind it over and over, watching it alongside the small handful of thrash videos that would make it onto the MTV show generally about three videos over the course of as many hours. Lead guitarist Alex Skolnick stood out to me right away, with his red guitar splashed against the band's otherwise black instruments and black attire. The New Order quickly became one of my most cherished cassette tapes. I picked up the first album as well, and soon, through various fanzines, I learned that Testament was originally called Legacy, and that their first singer, before the magnificent Chuck Billy, was none other than Steve Zetro Souza, the man who replaced Paul Bailiff in Exodus. What a small and magical world full of incredible thrash the Bay Area seemed to me, growing up on the south side of Indianapolis. I continue to follow Testament through various lineups and label shifts, and I can happily say that their three most recent albums, The Formation of Damnation, which marked Alex's return to the band after a time away, Dark Roots of Earth, and Brotherhood of the Snake are among the band's best. Easily one of the best rock guitarists of all time, and once a student of Joe Satriani, which we also talked about, Alex is rightly revered as much for his proficiency at heavy metal guitar as he is his diversity and breadth of expression. He has a degree from the New School for Jazz and Contemporary Music, and in addition to Testament, he's been a member of Sabotage, Trans-Siberian Orchestra, and Stratophurious. His stature as an important figure in the Bay Area thrash scene is more than enough to warrant an appearance on this podcast, but moreover, the ever-articulate and creative Skolnick is just as impressive for his cultural commentary, often found on his website and Facebook page. I highly recommend reading his essays, for lack of a better word, on Metallica's Lulu, their performance of Lady Gaga at the Grammys, and the time Kanye West was photographed in a Testament shirt, all of which we discuss in this episode. Alex is also a core member of Metal Allegiance, the all-star band who assembled to play covers on Motorhead's Motorboat, and have now written not one but two original albums packed with guests. Last month, I hosted a Q&A at the Musicians Institute in Hollywood with Metal Allegiance members and part-time participants, David Ellison of Megadeth, Mike Portnoy, Andreas Kisser of Sepultura, Mark from Death Angel, and Mark Mengi. Alex was on tour with his renowned jazz outfit, the Alex Skolnick Trio. Though I didn't get to see him at MI, I was thrilled when he agreed to come on to Speak and Destroy, and it turned out to be what I believe is the longest episode so far, with a wide-ranging discussion covering his early adventures with the guitar, and so much more related to our shared love and respect of Metallica. Quickly, before we get into this episode, do you have a question that you'd like to hear answered on Speak and Destroy? Drop an email to speakanddestroy at superherohq.com, or hit me up on Twitter at Ryan Downing, or head over to one of the Speak and Destroy socials. Speak and Destroy is on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook. Ask your question in any one of those places, and maybe we'll start doing some uh, questions and answers here at some point. And right now, the best way you can support this podcast, if you're enjoying it, is to go into the iTunes store or wherever you consume podcasts and leave a five-star rating and a review. We recently cracked 100 reviews. Thank you for that. Please keep them coming. The more of those we get, the higher the visibility of the podcast and the more people can discover it and participate in these awesome conversations about Metallica. So here it is, my conversation with the great Alex Skolnick. This is Speak and Destroy. (laughs) 
missed you at the uh, at the MI thing. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I, I couldn't make it. I was up in uh, Northern California. It was fun. We were. Uh, David was talking about it being the 35th anniversary of Megadeth, and I pointed out that it was the 30th anniversary of the Megadeth T-shirt that I was wearing. Oh, awesome! <laughs> purchased purchased it my first ever metal show in February 1988. Wow! So almost oh, that's almost to the cool. month. Yeah, still have it. Still yeah. have it, and can still almost squeeze into it. I pulled it wow. off, I think. It's what? Yeah, I have I have very few like pictures from childhood and memorabilia, but I but I do have uh, my Megadeth and Slayer shirts from 1988. Well, that's worth celebrating, especially that you can fit into it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what yeah. uh, that's what Andreas was saying too. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was a lot of fun, and it, it was definitely a nice kind of life full circle moment because uh, you know David had originally applied to Musicians Institute, and MI had found an apartment for him nearby, which was uh, the fateful apartment where he was neighbors with Dave Mustaine. Uh, 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 yeah. um, and then he ended up not going to the school. Um, yeah. So look what happened. Yeah. yeah. And then some <laughs> serendipity for me personally, and that Megadeth was my gateway to all of this. And, uh, okay. you know, to hear, to hear Mr. Ellison on stage, uh, identify me as his very good friend of many years was uh, kind of a, you know, you kind of take a moment and go, this is awesome. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that is really cool. Um, so yeah, let's talk a little bit about how your journey began. Uh, was there was there music around the house? Did you have, uh, you know, were there records that you were hearing? Uh, what was your what was young Alex Skolnick all about? Uh, there wasn't much music around, to be honest. Uh, there were a lot more books. Hmm. Um, I have. Uh, Ivy League intellectual parents who have, yeah, they're just like extreme academics, yeah, with PhDs from from Yale in uh, psychology and sociology, and uh, you know, music. There was a, a turntable, but it wasn't used that often. I didn't hear much music until, um, but I, I always noticed music in cartoons. Uh, I always liked the like the, you know, the classical music, the classical themes that were sort of incorporated into Bugs Bunny cartoons, like uh, F- Flight of the Bumblebee. I think was one. Oh yeah, or the the uh, Barber de Seville. Yes. <laughs> or you know, Franz some you know Franz Liszt or the Marriage of Figaro. You know, I mean, you could you could think of so many. And, yeah, and, it's, um, and it's great how those cartoons were giving us a, a classical education unbeknownst to us, you know? Yeah, I didn't realize that until years later. And then I would hear these melodies. And I said, wait a second. I, I remember that from Bugs Bunny. And so I think I was always drawn to that. And uh, I first noticed um, rock music, you know, and I, I would hear like early rock and roll, like um, rock around the clock. And uh, I think, you know, when I was a kid, uh, it was the 70s. And that's when, when I first noticed music. And, you know, they say pop culture happens in 20-year cycles. So 20 years after the 50s, you know, you have the 70s. And uh, 50s were sort of making a comeback. You had Happy Days on television. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I think it was 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 Greece in the seventies also? Uh, yeah, Greece was in the late seventies. Yeah, 
And that was, you know, very set in the 50s. Yes. Uh, American Graffiti, which was a little before my time. I, I think I was sort of barely conscious when that came out. But apparently that, you know, just really brought back, you know, the whole, um, you know, uh, love for the 50s. And at the end of the decade, you know, we're talking like really 1980, you know, the beginning of the next decade. I think like the last of these types of movies came out and it was called uh, American Hot Wax. And it was kind of a dud at the box office and uh, had, it had these sort of B-list actors named Jay Leno and uh, <laughs> Fran Drescher. <laughs> but what, uh, what really um, got me with this movie was um, it starred all these uh, 50s artists as themselves. So you had Jerry Lee Lewis in there playing himself, um, Screamin' Jay Hawkins, who yeah, many consider him like the first heavy metal artist. Sure. In a way. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? He was, yeah. he was doing Alice Cooper before there was Alice Cooper. And um, Bobby Darren and uh, a bunch of, there were the, you know, these, I think the Shirelles, a, a few different girl groups, but the one that really knocked me out was Chuck Berry. And he just stole the show and just completely blew me away. And this was around the time I discovered Kiss. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was really sort of discovering these, these things on my own. And I think that that same year, uh, the Blues Brothers movie came out. Yes. Right? And that, that had a tremendous impact as well. Yeah, that had a huge impact on me. Also, I think when we first got HBO, I mean, back, you know, before there was even premium cable, when it was just your local network affiliates, and then you paid for HBO, the Blues Brothers seemed like it was on all the time, and that that definitely shaped my young mind in terms of music, style, comedy. <laughs> there were a, yeah, so a that lot of things I can still too. trace. Yeah, me too. absolutely. I can still quote the movie almost verbatim. It seems like, and uh, I. Just, started playing guitar that year so we're talking you know i guess i, I started to play guitar i was 10 1980 um 11 yeah i turned 12 later in the year so i'm playing a little bit and you know the blues brothers music was you know some of it was you know pretty complex to transfer to a guitar you know we're talking big horn section but then it has the peter gunn theme in it which i'd never yeah i i was too young for the original Peter Gunn show, but their version of the Peter Gunn thing. Okay, I could figure out that riff, and um, with American Hot Wax, I had I had a great uh, guitar teacher at that point that showed me all these '50s tunes, and I also liked Kiss, and I loved the Beatles, and of course the Beatles were influenced by Chuck Berry, and uh, conversely, uh, you know Kiss in his own way was you know they had they had some of these early sort of signature early rock riffs incorporated into their music even though it was you know, much heavier music did you did you see uh very recently you know gene simmons has been promoting that vault thing that he's put out with all of his unreleased solo material and oh, i saw is that what that is i didn't know what that was oh I gosh yeah <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah I, I i lost track of all the gene simmons headlines with, it, it is yeah, a the, it is a 38 pound safe oh my god <laughs> and it has hundreds of songs it has what i believe is the first ever gene simmons figure 
uh, without makeup or a costume. Like it's a Gene Simmons action figure, like in street clothes Mm. Um, and a bunch of other odds and ends. And then part of the appeal as it were is, uh, you know, you pay several thousand dollars and Gene will hand deliver the vault to your front Ah, ah, (laughs) show up ah. and hang out at your house. But in, in, but in, in promoting it, the reason why I bring this up is in promoting it. He's been, he talked about, you know, there's a song he did with Bob Dylan and, um, all these different collaborations. And he said, uh, I don't know how, uh, if this is a, if this claim is, is to be believed or, or how much basis in fact there is, but there was apparently some sort of missed mm. opportunity at a, uh, Lennon and McCartney, Gene Simmons collaboration that was, uh, said to have been on the books and then just didn't happen for whatever reason. Weird. Wow. Imagine that. You never know. You know, you never know. So and you know, was, and, and you know, Ozzy. I've I've gotten the opportunity to interview Ozzy many times yeah. over the years, and McCartney's like his hero. Absolutely, you know? that's his favorite so, musician. And yeah. I and I know that, and I've had arguments with people that <laughs> they, you know, they say, "Oh yes, you know, Sabbath and Zeppelin are the greatest bands. Beatles are overrated." Well, you would not have those bands if it wasn't for the Beatles, right? And if you ask the members of those bands, they would all agree with that. So and then, yeah, and then the Beatles would be... tell you Chuck Berry and Screaming Jay Hawkins and everything. You Absolutely, yeah, sure, sure. Absolutely. So it's I think that, yeah, it's important to know your history. But I, you know, so I liked all this music, and it never, it never occurred to me that there was any. I didn't. I wasn't really aware of categorization. You know, like I didn't see why you couldn't love Kiss and Chuck Berry and the Blues Brothers and the Beatles. Yeah, it was all totally related and. It all went into my, you know, my first, my formative years of guitar playing, which were also influenced by the fact that I have a, an older brother who doesn't play anymore, but he, uh, he, he played in some local bands, uh, started on guitar, switched to bass. And so I, you know, and I used to go to these clubs and, you know, I would see how local, the local scene operated. By yeah. the way, my older brother, also a local band bass player. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's interesting, interesting uh, coincidence. Yeah, yeah, no, you. It's really like an eye-opening experience. And you know, until my brother started playing these clubs, I didn't know that. You know, you, you don't. There aren't just big concerts. You can yeah, go see same here. Concerts in these little places, and sometimes the bands are really good. Sometimes they're not so good. You know, but some of them are really good. Some of them will go on to be much better known bands and uh through the local music scene that my brother was in now he at the time he was in new wave bands which it was you know as it was called the sort of cleaned up music influenced by punk but it was much more commercial and uh uh that was was my first love all that era where uh you're you're not a whole bunch older than me a few years older and that was that was my formative stuff was Adam and the Ants and Generation X and, sure, and, and yeah. that was the stuff my older brother was passing down to me and that that was that was when music sort of swept me away uh, and that was prior to discovering metal I actually went right from that stuff into metal via Megadeth so <laughs> right well, yeah, yeah there was it's interesting there was um, a lot of a lot of kids in school would sort of gravitate to whatever was pop there would be these trends right so. Uh, when I was in junior high school, it was for some reason it was popular to like Ozzy. Like everybody was an Ozzy fan, 
And then a year or two years later, uh, it was passe to like Ozzy. And everybody had moved on to New Wave. And it was the British, uh, the English beat, um, Madness, Boingo Boingo. And I, I didn't mind that music, but I still liked Ozzy. Mm-hmm. I was getting more into Ozzy. And I was like, wow, Ozzy was in this band called Black Sabbath before that. Now I'm checking out their record. So suddenly I, you know, I wasn't cool anymore. And, um, but it was, you know, it was the whole, the whole social dynamic thing was, was interesting. And I never really cared about that. I just, you know, I liked the music. I liked that. And I liked some of that, that new wave stuff, but I knew playing wise, it wasn't for me. And I thought, you know, guitar wise of hard rock and heavy metal was just much more exciting. And also at the time, even like the, the bands my brother w- was in that were more, you know, ska and new wave bands, they would still, they would cross paths with the metal bands. It was really interesting. So anyway, I just, there, it was, uh, you know, the Bay area music scene at this time, you know, I'm sort of observing it going to my brother's shows. You know, I'm, I'm really, not, I'm not old enough to get into these clubs, but I, I go along, you know, and I'll, I'll help carry a, uh, a speaker cabinet, you know, to, to get in and you know, make myself useful. And I just, yeah, I watched, uh, you know, the local shows and I watched the clubs and, you know, and occasionally there were these small, uh, you know, these very small world situations. So, uh, my older brother was in a band called freaky executives and it was a, a, um, it was, yeah, it was one of these ska new wave bands and, such a, such an 80s name too that's <laughs> great completely and their guitarist uh had been in a metal a metal band for about a week <laughs> his name was mike mong and uh he ended up uh, replacing uh kirk hammett in exodus for about a week wow you know, at the time i didn't know any of this like i didn't know who Exodus was, I didn't know who Metallica was, you know, um, but I just met this guy. He's the new guitarist for the Freak Executives, and he was talking about his band. And then the guys from Exodus started go, you know, they would go to the shows, Freak Executives. So I met them as just like, you know, friends of the band. And eventually, you know, uh, they replaced Mike. I, I think uh, the next guitarist was, you know, their classic guitarist, Rick, Rick Hunold. And then suddenly they were gigging and then it was time to check out this band Exodus. And then, you know, so at that point I'm like, okay, now I'm, I'm into, I'm sort of in, into the, in the know with metal. And then, you know, Exodus, uh, does shows with Slayer who's playing for the first time in the Bay Area. And so it's just interesting. It kind of led to knowing all these people, uh, catching these concerts at a really young age, and eventually you know, hearing about uh, this band that supported Exodus called Legacy. Yes, the guitar player left the band, and they need a guitarist. So I, I hear this through the grapevine and try and, out. And their it. and their singer was uh, playing guitar originally, right? The singer before Zetro. Oh uh, no, no, this I. I or may 
I think I thought Zetro was the original singer. You know, I, I, I want to say that there there was a guy named Derek. Does that sound right? Oh, yeah, Derek Ramirez. He never. I don't think he sang, or maybe maybe in the bedroom he sang. Right, right. Like early, that's, like that's, maybe there was an idea that he would sing. <laughs> that's possible. Yeah, that's totally possible. But when they when they did their first gigs, it was Derek and his cousin Eric on guitar. And and Zetro on vocal, and then as yeah, as we all know, Zetro would eventually join Exodus, and I mean, it's kind of amazing how it all happened. But it also it all started with me, just you know, sort of meeting meeting the Exodus guys because they were friends with the band my brother was in, which wasn't even a metal band; it was this completely new wave ska band but they love that band too if you ask any of the exodus guys about freak executives they'll all uh talk very fondly about now where did joe satriani enter into the mix for you were you already yeah well so yeah if we we go back just a couple years uh to like 1980 you know where i'm like 11 years old um at that point I'm, i'm studying with a an acoustic folk children's artist, you know, and I grew up in, in Berkeley, California. So it actually totally makes sense. And, <laughs> uh, but he was great. Uh, Gary, the guy's name was uh, Gary Lapo, And he, um, he would play at sort of, you know, it's so Berkeley, you know, playing at like anti-nuclear weapons rallies. And, uh, uh he had you know, these sort of Berkeley protest songs, but he was just a, a great teacher. And I, I, within a, I guess about two years, I just felt like I felt the need to study with another teacher and move, you know, because he was really more of a like an acoustic singer songwriter. And at that point, I could I could figure out songs and I could I could play songs. I I, th- I think I still thought I might want to be a a singer guitar player. And somewhere along the way, probably. Well, I thought I was 14, I believe. I I heard uh, well, I heard Randy Rhodes for the first time um, on you know Blizzard Blizzard of Oz, and I think within the same month I heard uh, the first Van Halen record. Even though I I was a little late to that, it it had been out for a few years, but the effect that hearing uh, you know Eddie Van Halen. In the f- the first wave of Van Halen and Randy Rhodes on those first couple Ozzy records, two guys just redefining and recreating an, an instrument, <laughs> like whole from whole cloth. Yeah, completely. That just changed everything. And I, I just I don't know. I guess I, I felt such a connection to what those guys were doing on on guitar. It's it just seemed even though it seemed. Um, like a very lofty goal to be able to play like that. There was just some connection to it. And I just thought this is the type of guitar player I want to aspire to be. So this was a couple of years into, you know, my studying guitar with the folk singer songwriter guy who was great, but you know, he didn't do that type of stuff. So yeah, I, uh, you, you went to the folk singer and said, can you show me this finger tapping stuff? And he's yeah, like, huh? exactly. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, there's this song called uh, Eruption. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but actually, before that, I, I, I had a, uh, I studied with a few different guys. Um, a friend of mine up the street had started playing guitar at this point, and he was studying with um, a local player who was yeah, more of a blues guy. You know, played a Stratocaster, uh, but he could do like all the like Mark Knopfler flicks. You know, Dire Straits was really popular at the time. And, and yeah. That's great guitar playing. Um, you yeah, know, there was there was great guitar playing that wasn't metal too. I mean, the, yeah, the the Police was out. I loved. I still still love the Police, and I wanted to learn that stuff. But that was yeah, that was a little more advanced than you know the the 50s rock stuff i was learning the police was so complicated and when you uh i went back and watched not that long ago i i showed i showed my kids actually the uh a concert from the synchronicity tour and um what's so brilliant about the police is how it's like it's like great design right where or great editing in a film where it seems really simple (laughs) and then when you pay attention just a layer beneath the surface you're like this is so complicated Oh yeah, there was so much going on. Yeah, uh, the musicianship was really solid. Um, you know, and I, I think I knew I wasn't ready for Van Halen and Randy Rhodes. I knew I couldn't jump into that. You can't just jump into that stuff. Um, but you know, the guy, this, uh, the guy I was studying with, yeah, you know, briefly. He, uh, you know, he showed me Mark Knopfler, Andy Summers. Uh, a little bit of uh, David Gilmore, you know, and it was cool. It was lead guitar, but it was it was manageable. And then I I moved on to some uh, local players, and it's just you know it's an interesting uh, small world because okay, so there were two guys in the Bay Area, at least in like the East Bay, that were considered like the real hot shots, right? So one guy, his name was um, Bob Coons, and he was the older brother of Michael Coons, who was the singer for the band Laws Rocket, which oh. is Laws and Laws Rocket is a whole other story, right? That's <laughs> yeah, the first band Metallica supported in the Bay Area. I mean, I've, yeah, it's, there's a very famous flyer. Yeah, Laws Rocket mm-hmm. with special guests imported from L.A. Metallica. Right? <laughs> Mm-hmm. So Mike had this uh, older brother, uh, Bob, and Bob could shred like nobody's business. But he was also he he was so into sort of prog rock and sort of quirky rock, you know, King, King Crimson, um, you know, jazz, jazz fusion. Um, so he he wasn't he never did. Uh, he wasn't in any of the well-known rock bands, but he could play like like a beast. I mean, he was just like you know the fastest picker I ever heard at that time. And then the other guy who was kind of considered the the big guy on the scene, his name was uh, Danny Gill, and Danny played in a couple different bands. He played in a band called uh, Diamond, which would often support uh, Laws Rocket. And they were a little bit more. They were a four-piece band. They were a little bit more like, um, and they had there was a it was a one guitar band, so it was a little bit more like uh, like a Van Halen. And they would 
do these shows with Laz Rocket. Yeah, Laz Rocket, I always thought was more like a little bit more like a Judas Priest. Mm. Yeah, Two guitars, sure. lead singer, everything. Danny Diamond didn't. They they lasted a year. They had a great year, but then I don't know what happened. They split up. They got a new singer. They moved to L.A. <laughs> you know, things didn't didn't work out. But th- at one point, they changed their name to Guilt, and they had uh, Chuck Billy on vocals. Wow! And just how wow. I, yeah, it's just crazy. <laughs> the whole wow. story is just insane. And that was how I first met. Chuck Billy, and that was before I was, you know, playing in a in a band of my own yet. And Danny was the first guy. So he, Danny, was actually a, a good friend of my brother's as well. And they had tried putting bands together. They they were never able to play together in a band that was established for some reason. They both played in different bands that did really well in the clubs. And made names for them, yet never together. But before they were out, you know, playing in their own bands, they they would be rehearsing uh, in my backyard. Like I would hear these guys rehearse, and Danny was the guy. He was the first guy that sort of figured out how to do the Van Halen technique. <laughs> nice. Now you know. Now you have, you know, you have so many. You have it's, it's all these instruction videos on how to do it. You have. 10 year old kids in Japan playing Van Halen legs, maybe even younger, you know, but at the time that like nobody did that. It was so rare. And I remember seeing uh, Danny, you know, doing the eruption thing. I'm like, that's insane. Like, how do you, do you do that? And you know, this is before you could like get videos of Van Halen himself doing it. Sure. And uh, so I started studying with, with Danny. And uh, Danny was my teacher, I guess, from the time I was 12 till the time I was 14. You know, great player, uh, and I learned a lot from him, but I got to this, again, I got to this point where I would bring something in that I wanted to learn, and I felt like he didn't really know how to do it. So then I would try to learn it myself. And then he'd be asking me, how are you doing that? <laughs> right. <laughs> I remember there, I think there was... Um, the student, van, the uh, student one, becomes the master. <laughs> that old cliche, yeah, right? Were, yeah. There were a couple, yeah, there were a couple of these licks where I, like, I, I would come in. I think I figured out how he's doing this. You know, like, wait, show me that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it was, it was great, but I needed to move on to another teacher. And I knew that... Both Danny and Bob had the same teacher, and his name was Joe. <laughs> and I didn't know anything else about him except that supposedly he's a disciplinarian. Uh, he takes no bullshit. So you have to practice your lessons. And he was known for firing students. That's awesome. Fire the teacher. He would fire students, and he had a waiting list. So he, you needed him more than he needed you. It it, it, and, ma- it makes me think about martial arts movies where this where the student you know sits outside the monastery in the snow for 
three days <laughs> to prove they're worthy of being let in type of thing, you know? It was a little bit like that. <laughs> waiting list was like over a month. And um, he also, he really, uh, he, he was known for, I, 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 you know, at this point, everybody knows who I'm talking about. He's a, he's a nice guy. He's not, right, a, right. he's not a mean guy, but he, he would tell it like it is. And he was known for cutting people down to size. If they deserve to be, and both uh, Bob and Danny, they were like kind of best on their block. But they, you know, when he when he uh, they would study with with Joe, he would just tell them the truth, which is you know they they really yes they had some good uh, things under their sleeves, but they you know uh, to be on a you know in the big picture, they they really both had a lot to work on. And anyway, both of them had stopped studying with him and decided, I don't know, they didn't need him or maybe they, you know, he, he wasn't giving them uh, enough credit and didn't, didn't rec he didn't recognize how good they really were. I'm not sure what it was, but um, both of them basically told me I shouldn't study with him. So these are both my previous guitar teachers <laughs> yeah. not to study with the guy they had studied with, despite the fact that, uh, you know, I'm hearing that this guy's the best. This guy's like, he's come from the East coast. He's very serious. He's on this whole other level. And I thought, God, that's so interesting. Why would I choose not to study with, with this person? So, you know, long story short, the Joe turned out to be Joe Satriani. And he was a, a great teacher, except you just you had to leave your ego at the door, hmm. and uh, you know, you, it and, was, and you weren't going to be showing him anything you had figured out. <laughs> no, that was not, <laughs> <laughs> definitely not. And within a couple of years, uh, he was off and running. You know, he was he he was on his second solo album. Um, his first was actually an EP and his second one was his first full length album and his student from back in New York, uh, Steve Vai at that point was becoming very well known, um, having be, you know, he'd become the guitarist in David Lee Roth band. And is, is, isn't that interesting too, when you talk about the small world and the connections that we go back to Eddie Van Halen and that first wave of Van Halen. And then as you're talking about um, Steve Vai and Joe Satriani, you know, Steve Vai ends up in what's now kind of the classic David Lee Roth solo lineup. And then Satriani ends up playing with Sammy Hagar and Michael Anthony. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That is, that is pretty. It's interesting pretty, how that all works. <laughs> it, is, it is. So, yeah, I mean that, so within a couple of years, Joe Satriani is really well known. And then I'm uh, doing my first gigs. But it's, uh, you know, two years later, I'm 16 and I'm doing my first gigs with Legacy, which would become Testament. And, uh, you know, so I've had this conversation with with friends of mine who are, are musicians. Sometimes we'll talk about, like, you know, great advice we got and terrible advice we got. Probably, you know, so I often say, yeah, some of the worst advice I got was, you know, don't 
go to this guy, Joe, for lessons. <laughs> <laughs> and luckily, I, I didn't listen. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's some terrible advice. Yeah. And then some of the best advice I got was, you know, was from Joe himself, who, you know, among you know, many you know, pearls of wisdom he had, well, you know, one of them was, you know, never try to be like the guitar player of the moment. Yeah, whoever that is. Now, for the longest time, that, that was Eddie. And, of course, it's great to, to learn things from Eddie. I still learn things off those early Van Halen records. But, uh, you know, people would, would just only focus on the flash of the technique and mm -hmm. the fact that he had you know, just such a great rhythmic sense and uh, just, you know, a great blues feel. Um, and then... For a while, it was Stevie Ray Vaughan, and I even knew people in the, in the Bay Area, you know, that would, yeah, you know, buy the Stevie Ray Vaughan Stratocaster, wear a hat, <laughs> just yeah, you know, really like kind of just like him. Yeah, and stand, stand outside in the rain anytime it rained. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I have friends uh, who grew up in Austin at the time. You know, Eric Johnson was popular even before he was nationally known. And there was a whole group of people that would <clears throat> dress just like him and try to play just like him. And, you know, so it, and it was funny. And I guess in hard rock uh, and metal at the time, so Ingve, when I came to Joe, like Ingve was sort of the guy. And uh, he, yeah, and he said, yeah, it's I'll, it's uh, it's okay to learn the stuff, you know, learn these arpeggios, and I'll help you learn it. But don't copy his his feel. Don't don't try to be just like him. You know, try to have a lot of different influences. And it's just funny that a couple years later, the guitar player of the moment that everybody was trying to copy was Joe Satriani. <laughs> yeah, well, I like that idea of, uh, you know, I, I've trained in Krav Maga, which which mm -hmm. incorporates a lot of hand-to-hand -hand combat techniques from various fighting styles around the world. Yeah, and, yeah. I, and I love that idea of, of getting all these different tools, putting them in your own toolbox and, and using them in a way that's specific to you and being open to constantly adding to them. Yeah. That's, yeah I think it's the only that. way to do it. Yeah. Cause you're not going to be able to mimic somebody else, no matter how much you try. And I, and I think this also, brings us kind of full circle talking about, you know, that through line from Chuck Berry and the killer to the Beatles to Sabbath to, you know, and so on. Um, mm -hmm. You know, when I think about Metallica, for example, I, I, you know, when I heard Metallica, I'd never heard Diamond Head, obviously. I mean, most people hadn't, I hadn't, yeah, heard, I hadn't yeah. heard Motorhead and it's like in many ways, kill them all is Motorhead and Diamond Head combined, but it's still through the prism of, the unique life experiences of, you know, the street kid, Dave Mustaine and this Danish <laughs> almost tennis pro. And you know what I mean? You put all this combustible elements together and you get these songs that could, while they're, you can see the ingredients, the, the meal wouldn't have tasted the same if it had been cooked by someone else. Yeah, absolutely. And even, um, you know, it's funny. We, with, um, Metal Allegiance, yeah, we recently played the, the Prowler from the first Maiden album. Nice. And the guitar solo section on that, it, it's, it's Motorhead. <laughs> it's more technical. Uh -huh. yeah, it's, it's much more technical. You know, they Maidenized it 
but it's basically it's what I think of as <clears throat> the Motorhead groove. And you can hear that in a bunch of the Metallica stuff. But, you know, of course, when Metallica does it, it sounds like Metallica. But it's just great to hear, you know, bands sort of, you know, borrow, but, you know, filter it through this uh, this prism that makes it sound sound unique. Yeah, I remember when the first Coldplay record came out, someone telling me, uh, you know, this is just U2 plus Radiohead. And I'm like, yeah, but you didn't think to make U2 plus Radiohead. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, him, it's just Black Sabbath plus typo negative. Yeah, that's a great idea. <laughs> you sure. Know? Um, and, and it is always sort of through, it's going to inevitably sound unique to to the artist that's creating it. I, mean, I would imagine doing the Metal Allegiance thing, you, you know, and unpacking all these, the songbooks of all these classic bands and doing some reverse engineering, you're probably making all sorts of discoveries like that. Okay, wait a second. <laughs> this this actually reminds me of this. I'd never noticed oh, that yeah. before. Yeah, and I you know I'll use those those as as references. Uh, whereas you know it's it's fun to learn all this music as an experienced musician. Right. Oh, right. I know exactly what they're doing. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. Whereas yeah, you know, when I was hearing that stuff for the first time as a kid, it was just it was so mysterious and so yeah. magical. And it's you know it's still exciting. To, to listen to but now you know just having made you know having dozens of records and knowing the process and knowing how guitar tones are made and how songs are written um yeah you, you just you you can it's fun to check out all this music with uh you know a new perspective and understanding so as all of that was happening in the bay um you know, Exodus and Legacy and Legacy Becoming Testament and obviously, of course, Metallica. Uh, as that was developing this barrier, a thrash scene that, that of course, would eventually in, incorporate and encompass, you know, everything from violence to Death Angel to Forbidden and, you know, third wave and fourth wave and whatever you want to, however you want to categorize that stuff now. Did you have a sense at the time that you were part of something that could be described as a movement or a scene or a a genre within a genre, or, you know, all, all these ways that, you know, for me, a kid growing up in Indiana, reading about that as it was happening and, and discovering it and that sort of thing, it seemed like this, you know, like Camelot or something like, you know, some, some sort of, uh, you know, like, uh, like thinking about like the New York jazz scene or, or Delta blues or something, you know, um, was there any sense that there was something sort of electric happening or what, what was the, what was the vibe? I don't think so because, you know, we were in our own little uh, island, basically. That's what it felt, it felt like an island. And, you know, who knew what was happening anywhere else? You know what I mean? Like, obviously, if you're in New York at that time, then there's, you know, there's some other scene happening. Or if you're in Austin or Chicago, you know, I think, uh, we just weren't weren't aware of it, um, so I didn't know. I mean, the whole thing was very mysterious to me. Like, I wasn't sure. It, and it, you know, it's not like you didn't. Things weren't as connected as they are now. You didn't have the internet. You didn't have. Um, you know, you you had uh, music magazines, but they were mostly focused on bands that were you know extremely well known you have stuff mm -hmm. like magazines like uh circus hit parade or metal edge 
right? Everybody in those magazines had a record deal. Uh, if they weren't uh, headliners, they were supporting headliners. And um, yeah, those magazines weren't writing about bands and the tape trading scene. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Now there was the tape trading scene, and you did. We did hear about bands in other areas. So, for example, like I, I knew about the band uh, Sabotage. Even though they, they had a record out, it was out of print. And we, I remember having... It, it, it's ironic because I, I would end up doing a record with them. Yes. <laughs> That's all, which is a whole other story. Which yeah. Which leads to this other thing called the Trans-Siberian Orchestra. But and and time, Sabotage was supposed to play the first metal show I ever went to, which was Dio, Megadeth, and Sabotage, that tour. That's right. Uh, where I bought that Megadeth shirt. But my date in Indianapolis, and I, I don't know why, but for whatever reason, Sabotage canceled that date. They were, oh, on the, they were on the bill and they had merch set up there for sale, but they didn't play. Ah, but yeah, again, the small world of all this stuff, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I just heard, okay, there's a band from Florida. So there must be all these bands in Florida doing stuff. And who knew that? I, I figured all the, all the bands in Florida probably sound like that. That must represent what they sound like. You know, little did I know a few years later, <laughs> what hear, Florida was going to give us. <laughs> yeah, the band's from Florida. You know, it's like, yeah. like, wow, what is in the water out there? Um, I knew of Pantera before anybody, you know, before they had ever played in the Bay Area. And actually, I think they were still kind of a glam band at that point. But yet, yeah, maybe, maybe somehow pre-Anselmo. Word had spread. They had this. They had this one EP or this this album that was out, um, Metal Magic, I think it was called. And then, yeah, of course, you know, you, you'd hear about European bands. So I just figure, okay, what's happening here is happening everywhere. But little did I know, you know, that it was it was a unique sound and it was a unique scene, and how important so many of those bands would would be from such a relatively small place that we would yeah the sheer amount of bands that would go on to achieve fairly um high visibility was is is pretty remarkable at the same time you know we didn't know this at the time and we didn't know who was going to be well known and who wasn't so for you know for every uh slayer well slayers yeah really southern california but they once they started playing the bay area they were as soon as they got rid of the makeup uh, that is mm-hmm. <laughs> <just a famous laughs> story, they were just welcome they were like honorary parts of the, the bay area scene and uh so for every like slayer uh exodus and then later uh testament you know because we were later we were we didn't put out an album till 87 and that's we were really like the freshman class, you know. I was in high school, and Megadeth had records out, uh, Metallica had records out, Slayer had records out. So yeah, people talk about, you know, well the the Big Four thing isn't really fair, and you guys should be part of the Big Four. And I I have no problem with it at all because I think it's you know a seniority thing. All those bands had records out, and. 
and you and, every, and, and you guys did Clash of the Titans, which was kind of the proto Big Four tour back in the day. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Yeah. that was. Uh, I mean, you're, you, was I mean, definitely. Like, if, if there's anybody who's a big five and six, it's no question that Exodus and Testament are are those bands in everyone's minds. But um, but yeah, which I, is a, a big honor. You know, that's that's great, and I'm more than happy with that. That that's wonderful. Um, but for uh, for so for every big every band whether it's a big four band or even you know a big five or six or a big 10 you know you get into you have death angel and other well-known bands. there are there are many bands that you'll see on flyers that just you know didn't never made it to the stage of doing records so there were so many bands and i think at the time it wasn't clear I mean, I think I think we knew who who was going to uh, to laugh for a while and who was, but it, for a while it wasn't clear. I mean, I remember a time, and again, I mentioned earlier that yeah, you know, Laz Rocket was the first the first the first uh, headliner over Metallica, um, and I was talking to Kerry King uh, not that long ago, and I. I had seen their first show in the Bay Area, and I always thought their first show was with Exodus. It was actually with Laz Rocket. Oh, wow. All of these bands supported Laz Rocket, and it really seemed like that was the band that was going to go places. Like, And if, if anything, they were actually more accessible than most of the other bands at the time. And it's a little surprising. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, they kind of ended up being like the, yeah, the the MySpace or the Friendster, <laughs> <laughs> right? Of thrash, <laughs> of bands, yeah. Totally. You know what I mean? It was, yeah, like the first thing that came out, but then the ones that followed really perfected it. And you're so, so, and I think you're a little closer in age to Rob Flynn, who's who's also been a guest on the show. And I yes. thought that he had a really interesting perspective on all of this because he he was both a fan and a peer of those bands, you know, cause like, like you, he was in high school when kill them all yeah. was out and he was seeing a lot of those early shows. And, and obviously we think of, um, I think in your case, uh, you're probably associated a little more with that, uh, generation. If you can even call it that right before Rob, even though I think he might be a year or two older than you because you started so much younger. Yeah. Um, but you we, know, yeah. So. We were in the, in the same generation for sure. Um, and, and, I, and I think that that's one of the more exciting perspectives on, you know, what's become such a phenomenon uh, in, in the shape of Metallica in that, uh, you know, for you being uh, one of the, the stars of Testament um, with the red guitar when everyone else had the black guitars. <laughs> I always remember that. <laughs> um, yes. Uh, yeah. you, you, uh, you have this, this really unique vantage point. What, what was your first encounter with the Metallica guys? Did you And did you meet... The guys from the band before you saw them play, or vice versa. Well, I knew about them because of Exodus, so I had heard this whole story that the guitarist for the Freaky Executives, whose name was Mike Mong, uh, who actually looks a lot like Kirk, or at least he did at the time. <laughs> Amazing, and also half, half Asian. You know what I mean? It was like a perfect replacement visually 
but it's I like think- it's like Mark, Mark from Death Angel uh, said at that MI thing that the first time he met Kirk Hammett, Kirk was like, "You look like me." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Mike Mong replaced him, and he had the same look. And a good guitar player too, but I think you know it. Just after I, I, I think it la- I forget if it lasted a week or a month. And I think he did like at least one gig with them, but he was also, he had also started jamming with the freaky executives. And I think he just decided that, you know, the, the heavy ultra heavy thing just wasn't for him. And at the time there were, there was no reason to think that there was any commercial success or career stability to be had and <laughs> playing music that sounded like Exodus or, or Metallica, you know? Oh, absolutely. If you were looking to make music a career, that wasn't, that wasn't the, the move. Absolutely. And, you know, Freaky Executives was this large ensemble, too. I mean, they looked, they were like a combination of like Morris Day and the Time and the English Beat. And a couple of the guys in the band even had uh, connections to, um, you know, Sheila E., who is from the Bay Area, who, you know, was part of Prince's band and, uh, you know, it just looked like there could be major commercial potential with that band. And I think there could have been for, you know, what you could write a whole book on why things didn't happen with right. that band. Right. But anyway, so Mike Mong joins that band. Uh, and for a while, my brother was the bass player and I just heard the story. Yeah. Yeah. Mike Mong temp- briefly replaced, uh, the guitarist for Exodus. And I said, oh, what happened to him? Oh, he joined this other band. Uh, they're doing a record and they're touring it. It kind of lo- looks like they might be going places. Said, oh, what are they called? They're, they're called Metallica. You know, you should check them out. They're going to be coming around, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I go to see Metallica. They played the, the same place where everybody else played in um Berkeley. It was called the Keystone Berkeley, mm-hmm. and I'd seen, I'd already seen Exodus there. I'd already seen Laws Rocket there, um, and in a way, it was like this unfulfilled dream of mine. Yeah, it, it's such, a, it's so frustrating in a way. I never got to play there because it closed down before uh, I was gigging. I think it closed down like a year before I did my first gig. So at this point, I you know. I've played the Cow Palace. I've played Madison Square Garden. I've played Radio City Music Hall. But, <laughs> right. I'm still but, no, but no Keystone Berkeley. <laughs> I never got to play the Keystone Berkeley. <laughs> That's amazing. Anyway, so, so this, is, you know, this is our local place, and everybody had played there. Um, so Metallica comes through, and I guess they were on tour. And they had their record out, and I remember. Was this was this Raven, Metallica, and Exodus? By any chance? I think so. Because that would have been you and Rob Flynn may have unwittingly been at the same first Metallica show. Yeah, that's probably that's probably because <laughs> that's right. the one he was at. <laughs> yeah, I think that that's right. Yeah, they kill them all for one tour. I hadn't discovered Raven yet, and actually, when I, I think I I missed Raven, and I think Metallica headlined because they were the. Um, they were, you know, they, it was the Bay Area, and they had relocated there at that point. Uh, but all, all I know is seeing Metallica. It was just like, all right, this, this is, 
on a whole other level. And I couldn't explain why. I just thought, like, seeing, um, like, Exodus reminded me of a punk show, in a way. Even though it was, you know, it was metal, but it was so, it was just breathtakingly fast. Uh, A lot of punks would go to the show, too. Like, they really had a mix of, like, a punk and and a metal following. You know, and now that you mention it, I would say that, you know, similar to the switch from Paul Diano to Bruce Dickinson, you know, Bailiff had kind of a, a punk thing. You know, he looked like a metal guy, but his sort of erratic all over the place <laughs> vocals oh, and, and, and charisma were, were pretty punk. When you completely. And not, and not much melody. Right, right. I mean, but it didn't need it because it, was, it, was, it really wasn't about that. No, it's it was all about, vibe. It's all Yeah, it, yeah it's great. But I, I felt like, yeah, that, so Exodus, it was a rush to see them. You know, it was like super high energy, high speed, uh, you know, but di- different than punk because, you know, it had, it really had that metal guitar sound and solos that were clearly, you know, more inspired by like, like Maiden and Priest than say, you know, the Sex Pistols and, you know, Iggy Pop or the Stooges, you know, it just it had that modern sound, but it was it was great. But Metallica, for some reason, like they achieved the same intensity, but they also they had tune and they had a few fast tunes, but they also had tunes where it was very singable. So I just I remember um, Seek and Destroy, just thinking, oh my god, that that's like a a sports anthem. <laughs> right, <laughs> and then it's just this perfectly crafted tune for James to trade off with the crowd. Now you even have arenas singing the riffs in that song. That's you know, true. And they play it live, and it's oh, oh, oh. I mean that. Yeah, yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, exactly. So I just, I never would have guessed how huge it was going to be. Like, I thought, okay, if these guys play their cards right, maybe, you know, they could be on a level of, say, you know, Maiden or Priest. Maybe. Or Ozzy, you know. I wasn't even sure, though, because it's Yeah, even that was lofty, right? <laughs> yeah, that was yeah. huge. All, all those bands were, you know, arena bands at the time. But I never would have guessed that, yeah, not only are they going to reach that level, they're going to outlast those bands at that level. They're going to play stadiums where a lot of those bands will end up consolidating their venues mm-hmm. and switching to smaller theaters. And you, you know, they will be mentioned along, you know, like the biggest acts in music, like Springsteen and U2 and Madonna. I never would have guessed that, but I did, I, right away, I, I could tell, all right, they have something special, and they're, they're going places, they're going places beyond where all the other bands are going, I don't know where that is, but I'm gonna keep an eye on. This past week, the Black Album sold 3,000 copies in America. <laughs> this <insane>. week, <laughs> February 2018. <laughs> I mean, it's just, that's madness, you know, yeah. and they, and they own it now. <laughs> it's it's on it's on their own label. 
Good for them. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's incredible. Um, one of the things uh, that I enjoy and respect about you is that not only are you such an accomplished player and musician and everything from Trans-Siberian Orchestra to what you do with the trio and, you know, just you as a guitar player, and you, but you're also just so affable and, and friendly. And on top of that, as I'm singing your praises, um, I like right. that you are plain spoken and enthusiastic uh, you know a lot of times when people say opinionated it has this negative connotation right like oh, that that person spouts off and criticizes things and i I, th- I think that you're opinionated in a way that you will have these open commentaries on things like a fan you know because you're you're so well established in your own right as a musician and a player and and somebody in the pantheon of of this legendary bay area thrash thing if, if nothing else aside from everything else and yet, um, you know, you did this essay about Lulu <laughs> or Death Magnetic and, and even more recently, you know, a year ago, the, the Lady Gaga uh, Grammy thing. And um, as a bit of a cultural commentator myself, I, uh, I've always been drawn to that and thought it was really cool, uh, especially cool. given your kind of insider status on that kind of thing. You know, that you're able to, to experience those m- moments in culture as someone who's lived it in a sense, and also as someone who's observing it like the rest of us. You know, it's interesting. I, I don't seek attention with those commentaries as, as you know, hard as that may be for some to believe. Like, I don't <laughs> of course. Yeah. allow it to get... I post the stuff on, on my blog for, you know, for my readers or, um, you know, who, whoever's interested. And I never... I don't... You know, I'm always surprised that it resonates so so much or it causes so much controversy. Um, but to me, it's I, I never try to be controversial for the sake of being controversial or opinionated. I just um, I like you know I like to share perspective, and I don't I like to I, I like to be honest and I. It sometimes gets me in trouble because I'm I'm very bad at um, sort of putting on a front. Like I can't. Um, <laughs> that's one of the reasons why I do music and why I don't work in um, an office where I have to smile at the boss and <laughs> sort of not say what I'm really thinking. You know, I could never be in that situation. Um, so I, and I think that, you know, it comes out in my, in my writings and also in my music. I mean, I think I've, uh, I always felt like, you know, just because I'm, I'm known for this certain genre of music and where the majority of musicians are, you know, stick to that genre, which I, I've, that's great. I, I support that. Uh, I've, I've never felt like that should limit me as a musician and I like to work with musicians you know many different types of musicians out, outside of that genre and I've I think I think from the, like yeah you know, my real metal phase was around the time I joined uh, Testament when I was 16 and I had these few years where I was like okay you know I'm a metal guy you know my most of my listening is you know Randy Rhodes Ingve um, you know, Blackmore, Dio. And then, you know, I, uh, I discovered great 
instrumental music. And I, you know, keep in mind, I'd been a Satriani student. So I'd already, that was always a part of uh, my development. Um, but for some reason, it's, it shocks some people that, you know, I sort of, I sort of pursued that, um, the instrumental side or the jazz improvisation, whatever you want to call it, simultaneously. Uh, but to me, it just, it feels totally natural. Just like it felt natural for you to like all those different bands as a kid, even when the trends would move on and say, now you're supposed to like this stuff now. Like, yeah, I, exactly. I can like all of it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it a year after I discovered Ozzy in you know, junior high school, no, nobody was wearing Ozzy shirts anymore. And it's not cool anymore. You know, you know we've moved on. We're, you're so 1982, man. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, no, I could, actually that makes no sense to me. Ozzy's, you know, I like that music even more, and I'm like, I'm learning. It's going to take years to learn to play this music, but you know, this I think I'm always going to like this music. But you know, at the same time, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to apologize for liking John McLaughlin and Al Demiola and <laughs> and John Coltrane and Miles Davis. You know, that's that's a big part part of me, too. I don't try to force it on on people uh, every now and then. You know, I'll see these comments, you know, if, if um, I'm doing a, a tour of instrumental music where I do you know, one of my albums or I'll play on somebody else's album. If it gets picked up by a metal website, occasionally you'll see an angry fan. <laughs> you know, he, he, who the hell does he think he is? You know? Come on, man! You're supposed to be a thrasher. Uh, just, just the other day, I saw uh, something like that on my uh, Instagram, and you know, it was just—it's so ridiculous. It's like, you know, I'm not forcing you to listen to my instrumental stuff. I'm not forcing, you know. Not I'm to just... mention, I think that it all feeds in, you know, in, in my experience, and you know, all the creative people that I've known. The more you branch out and do other things, the better and sometimes even sort of more pure that other project is. You know, I'm yeah, like, I think I, so too. I think it gives you a different perspective. And sometimes, and sometimes I think bands get ruined by that if you have people who are painted into a corner in this creative cage and feel that they're only supposed to do a certain type of thing. Sometimes you get these bad albums that are a result of them butting up against those constraints. Whereas, oftentimes you let someone go wander and explore everything and it's that much better for kind of the purity of the of the original thing yeah it really uh it really is i mean i i i'm more drawn to musicians that are you know they're not they're not purists or and i you know there are some great purists too um but you know i i guess uh it just yeah, it, f it feels natural for me to 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 play different types of music. I I you know, and I I think I also got, I got to a point where with um, heavy metal guitar, it it really it requires a lot of technical facility, and it seemed to me like wow, you know, if I have all this technical facility, I can use that to and apply it to. Mm other music I like, whether it's, you know, jazz fusion or, uh, you know, I like 
there's there's even some country guitar that I like. And Almost I like you were developing those skills without realizing it. You know? Like, yeah, absolutely. You know, kind, of, kind of a, a karate kid wax on, wax off kind of thing. That's exactly, <laughs> exactly right. And <laughs> the vast majority of feedback I get is incredibly positive. And I have people tell me that, you know, they... They, they, you know, they're not afraid to um, open their minds to other kinds of music because of me. I, I just did a tour with my trio, and I, you know, I played uh, a place called Yoshi's, which is where I saw all my favorite jazz artists growing up, and that's that was kind of like what the Keystone Berkeley was mm-hmm. to me. Uh, Yoshi's was to me on the jazz uh, improv side of things, and to play there was just yeah, incredibly fulfilling. And yeah, I, that's I, I've played at a number of venues like that, and people always I always meet people at the shows that have never been to a concert like they've never had that experience of right. coming to the show, uh, sitting down, not talking, listening, enjoying a glass of wine, and just really getting into the music uh, as a listener. There's no you know, and I. <laughs> I sometimes joke about, you know, the mosh pit. Yeah, there's no mosh pit here tonight, guys. You know? <laughs> well, I mean, as as you astutely pointed out once about Lars being the bridge between Motorhead and MoMA, um, yeah. you know, Alex Skolnick is definitely a bridge between thrash metal and jazz fusion <laughs> for a lot yeah, of people. Yeah, and, and it's fun. Know? It's fun. And it, you know, it, it sort of shows uh, these fans, the, you know, for in some cases, people have this other experience, and they start going to other shows. They realize, you know, and I, you know, I, I like. I, it's it's to me, it's it's really coming from a place of sharing. It's not. It's never about oh, you know, look at look at what I can do, and you know, look how I can play guitar. In fact, uh, the music I play you know, in all my instrumental projects, it's as much about the other instruments as it is about the, the guitar. And, you know, if I, when I, a long time ago, uh, I saw Jeff Beck for the first time. And yeah, I think he's a great example of that where it's, it's really not just about him. I mean, yes, the guitar is terrific, but you hear so much other, there's so much, so much great stuff to be heard from the musicians he's playing with. And I think sometimes, you know, with the whole instrumental shred movement, sometimes that, that gets lost. And I know when I started doing instrumental music, people expected me to do sort of like a, a metal version of like the Satriani Vi thing, which, you know, just it just wasn't for me because it's so I don't want to just show off on guitar. I really want to create music that uh that i'm interested in and you know yes you can go see me uh on a you know on a tour with testament and you'll you'll hear like screaming blistering metal and i'll put i put my heart into it i love playing that but there's also there's 24 hours in the day i'm not listening to metal 24 hours a day yeah Uh, i mean i mean it would be like only watching comedies all the time <laughs> you know or Absolutely. only watching comic book movies or you know sure i totally get that and i like you know i like artists who are diverse i mean you know i like uh you know an, an actor i you know maybe 
I could see an actor in a superhero film and yeah, maybe doing metal can be like that. You know, it's like larger than life and it's this intense experience, but then you can see the same actor doing some, uh, independent, uh, Sundance award-winning film. Yeah. <laughs> and it makes perfect sense. Or, you know, I, I love, I love, um, I love watching the career of Rick Rubin, you know, who went from, you know, producing, you know, Slayer's Rain and Blood to working with Johnny Cash. <laughs> right. Right. And see, what, what's the difference between the two? You know, they're both great music. Yeah. We're, we're, you know, and, and I remember uh, the first time I ever heard Public Enemy realizing that they had sampled Slayer <laughs> and then yeah. figuring out like, wait, and, you know, making all these connections. I, Absolutely. So to me, it's, you know, it, it doesn't matter. So I've, I've always admired, there's a, there's a, a number of artists that are like that. And I've always sort of wanted to be like the guitar version of that type of art. That's cool. Um, and I want to tell you something that you wrote that really resonated with me, which was your, uh, your piece on Lulu, because, yeah. uh, you know, one of the things you said early into it was that, you know, you, you had to admit you didn't like it, but you were fascinated by it. And I, I complete, that's a camp that I completely understand and I think is important to explore. Because first of all, I like, I like how you contextualized it with, you know, um, John and Yoko and Pat Metheny and, yeah. uh, you know, a uh, Blue Reed, <laughs> you know, much yeah. years prior to that, Andy Warhol, this sort of stuff. Yeah. Because um, I do think that that's, the best way to view it and sort of what makes it fascinating. And, you know, what I've said, I've said this on this podcast before. And then uh, prior to talking to you today, I, I, I read the Lulu thing when it came out and then I reread it today to kind of refresh my memory on it. And, you know, what I've said on the podcast before is that I don't begrudge them on seizing the opportunity to collaborate with Lou Reed when it presented itself and seeing where it went. And then, yeah, throwing in this German expressionism and all this weirdness and making a record, my feeling as a fan is that it then should have been put on a shelf, right? <laughs> locked away in a vault, and then someday, you know, perhaps when the band isn't able to tour anymore, or, or God forbid, we, you know, a, a significant member passes away, or whatever the case is, when when you're in that twilight sort of legacy, uh, you know, like an Elvis or a Tupac or something, then you go, hey. There's this thing we unearth, this gem, this oddity uh, from the Metallica vault. And you kind of trot it out as a curiosity and go, you know, they made a whole art concept thing with Lou Reed once. And I, and I think that had it been presented in that way, it, it may have had a chance of being even better accepted. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. And uh, I think, well, I, I think that, you know, the whole thing could be summed up in uh, like six words. You know, which is really what triggered uh, me writing about it, which is the six words are, you're not supposed to like it. <laughs> right. Wow, that's awesome. And I, well, and I, I also like and everybody I, was going nuts. And they're talking about it like and, and the, the whole reaction to it, I think, was part of the it, it just it started to make sense in this very strange way. And I had to share it. And. Yeah, I'm not gonna name drop, but I got I got approval from within the organization. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah, that was like, oh, yep, you're you got it. <laughs> because, because I think that you know, 
and this was the point that you made that I was reminded of this morning that takes it a step further than I do and that I really have to kind of marinate in because I think there's really something to it. And your point was also even that re- the, the mere act of releasing it is part of the art of it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, whereas I'm like, I understand why they made it, but why did they have to put it out right now? I, yeah. I, and I love, you know, if I can quote you even where you said, think about it, Lou Reed and the world's biggest heavy metal band get together, bond over German expressionism, create an album that is difficult to digest and release it to the world. If that's not art, I don't know what is. And uh, yeah, wow. I mean, and what a chance in that sense. What an artistic sort of risky. So, well, that's great. And I, and I won't try to interrogate you on it any further, but I, I do love. Your... No, I mean, you're, that's exactly right. Uh, what you're saying. And sure. And I, I, under, I understand your point. Yeah, there's you could debate. Maybe they should have. Put well, it away. Well, most people would say they shouldn't have even made it, and I and I'm already in an adversarial uh, <laughs> Metallica defender camp by telling yeah. people that I completely understand them making it. But yeah, I think but, it would be a great, you know, it would have been a great collector's item. Yeah, uh, so I, I could see that. I mean, you know, uh, Prince had the the black album, right? Which was ne- which was never going to be as good as you imagined it to be. It was not supposed the to myth. be released. Right, he was pissed. That they they actually released it, um, but you know it's yeah it's it's one of those it, it was an experiment, like Ed, Ed, Eddie and the Cruisers, a season in hell. <laughs> right? Right. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> one of my favorite parts about that movie is the like mythic, you know, unreleased. Dark, but it's so interesting. Album. Any any time I, I I do have this um, burden, like any time I I write about it's about anything, pretty much. Yeah. People see it through this filter that, oh, it's the guy from Testament. Yeah, and you mentioned but that in the piece, which was kind of what I, like, I was getting this around is to earlier. Not yeah. The guy from Testament right. writing about. Like, try to separate, please. Try to, you know, uh, yeah, with a, a disclaimer. And, uh, it, yeah, it's difficult. I, I understand why, but I, you know, I actually have a. Uh, you know, it's not that I, I'm not proud of, you know, my existence as the guy from Testament, but that's not, I don't live as the guy from Testament 24 hours a day. And it was the other part of me that's not the quote unquote guy from Testament that wrote that article. Yeah. And I, and I, uh, I, I completely understand that. And I think most thinking people and fans and admirers of yours will, will understand that too. Um, and yeah, I, I, unfortunately I, there's a lot of non thinking people out there. Yeah. But you always got to remember to quote Metallica, the empty can rattles the most. <laughs> and uh, I, I always, I always like to point out, uh, you know, I, I've said this to bands for years where it's like, okay, so see this news article, you just announced tour dates and there's 40 comments saying they wish you, your bus would crash and you would all die. Um, just keep in mind that for the 40 people that left those shitty comments, you know, 40,000 people said, oh, tour dates for this band. Cool. Are they coming to my town? And then went about their day. <laughs> so it's always oh, yeah. the, the perspective, like the people that actually take the time to comment with this enthusiastic negativity. Yeah. The, you know, there's there's such a small minority compared to people that have goodwill that are like, oh, cool. And, and, aren't spending any time saying anything positive or negative. They're just yeah, no, thinking you have, warm thoughts you have and going to about their yourself. day. 
Yeah. You, do, you really have to remind yourself. It's like, you know, I did an Instagram post a few days ago, and it's, I'm playing uh, a 70s jazz fusion keyboard solo that I thought was awesome uh, from a Tony Williams album. And it's gotten just great comments and uh, people saying, you know, this is why I follow you because you do stuff like this as well as the, the metal stuff. And, nice. and of course, you know, there's one guy, you know, what the hell is this? <laughs> you're a thrasher. You forgot you're a thrasher. This is, I think he said, this just sounds like children's music. <laughs> this, this isn't trial by fire. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's like one guy. One guy. And it's out of like just a line of and one and one guy whose day would probably be made better if he actually listened to some children's music once in a while. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> and then like a completely unrelated post, but also it went semi-viral. Was uh, you know last year Kanye West was photographed in a testament chart, mm-hmm. and I just I, I I only wrote about this because I I made a comment about to a, you know, a friend who posted it online and of course you know the my, my comment got grabbed and turned into a news and so then i had to like write an actual piece on it but i i knew you know of course it's gonna be oh it's the guy from testament or the the metal guy slamming the rap guy i like the just the first thing i had to say you know first thing you have to do is not see things through that filter yeah, and you could just as easily could have been talking about Justin Bieber wearing a Metallica shirt, which he has, or, uh, you know, Megan Fox at LAX in a Megadeth shirt, which happened, um, you know, or Chris, Chris, Chris Brown in his punk jacket with uh, <laughs> all these punk stickers on it. You yeah, know, it's kind of fine. a case by case, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, it, Megan Fox, who would I, I was going to say, if, if you don't enjoy Megan Fox in a Megadeth T-shirt, I, I, I've got nothing in common with you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the yeah no the problem you know and i have no problem with with him per se uh and you know i think any you know anybody's allowed to wear what you know whatever they want but it's just it's i i don't yeah i don't like i don't like what he represents in particular just mainly because his associations like the whole kardashian clan yes that that's really what that was about, but you know, it's it, it's nothing about you know, like a, him being a rap guy wearing a metal shirt. In fact, I I think there's rap guys now that to me have way more cred than some metal bands. I mean, you know, like I, I you know, Ice T is killing it, and Daryl McDaniel's from Ren DMC, and you know, like I would never question any of these guys. Because you know these are real fans, right? And right, you know Kanye's defenders have told me, you know, he listens to a lot of music. He probably is aware of you guys. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah I don't. It's know. hard I to imagine. I, I, yeah. I can I can say you know uh, Pete Wentz from Fallout Boy. He's uh he he's there's a bunch of photographs. I think it was his. It might even still be his Twitter profile picture. He's wearing a Ride the Lightning T-shirt, and I, I happen to you know th- my own small world. Uh, life story. Um, I've known Pete for many years prior to Fallout Boy, and I can unequivocally say he was a Metallica fan 
way back then. Sure. <laughs> so, you know, some people see that and they go, oh, this guy in this pop band's trying to wear this Metallica shirt. And it's like, yeah, that guy in that pop band, I know in particular, could probably talk circles about Metallica, like around you. You know? Oh, yeah. Um, and, you know, Matt Nathanson and I, we, like, we're, we're friends online. And, you know, he's a super pop guy. I mean, he's like, tours with John Mayer and right. It's probably right. lighter than music than John Mayer. Yeah. But he, he really knows his metal and really likes it. And Ryan Adams. Oh, sure. So yeah. A bunch of these guys. Like, yeah, sure. You, you know, you wouldn't question it at all, but, uh, with the Kanye thing, yeah, it was coming off on the, well, it was all coming on the heels of some really weird Kanye behaviors. Yeah. Sort of like butchering <laughs> Bohemian Rhapsody at the Glastonbury festival. <laughs> Um, all, you know, visiting Trump Tower, yes. and just all kinds of weird stuff. <laughs> and uh, I love, I love, by the way, that wearing the Testament shirt was another log on that fire. Like oh, that, yeah. that, you know, that that's like on the list of like he went to Trump Tower, he butchered Bohemian <laughs> Rhapsody, he wore a Testament shirt. What is he doing? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, exactly. It was just the timing was yeah. really. Could you uh, could could you assemble all of those little facts together and and say that that's like a Lulu style art installation of Kanye's? <laughs> Maybe, <laughs> but I, I just I, I guess I draw I draw the too line. Much credit. Yeah, the whole reality show factor, you know, which is it's more his his other half than him, but but still that just ties into this whole entity of you know. These, yeah, Ryan Seacrest type shows that I believe are yeah. helping destroy Americans. <laughs> yeah, those are those are definitely uh, adverse yeah. elements to our culture for sure. For me, I always, I always come back to intention, and I think that what whether or not something is art is it has to do with authenticity and meaning, and does this whether or not I connect to this art or enjoy it, um, I can appreciate that's being made with some sort of pure intention. And I think there's a lot of commercial films and music and television and reality television, certainly that's being made with some other aim in mind. And in some right. cases that's innocuous, right? Where it's like, well, I want, you know, I want a song that's going to be a banger at the club and this and this and that. And, and I understand that that's not for me. And I understand that there's a, a, a workmanship and a mechanics involved in that that requires talent skill uh but i don't see it as art because i don't right. think that it's expression that's being made for his own sake i think it's a calculated you know means to an end so. yeah which you know you could you know you could say the same thing about gaga for example and what she does but she's you know rid ridiculously talented musician who and I, can and, sing and, and i think like she really knows nobody's her she know. I. She also knows her metal. Yeah. Yeah. And she, she loves can, Iron Maiden. Yeah, as she can sing and uh, play uh, piano like nobody's business, and loves metal. Um, yeah, I, I would have advised her to <laughs> do a few things different on her uh, collaboration. I would have. I, I, the, the the biggest, the most uh, egregious part of all of it was the uh, were all those uh, extras. I don't know what else to call them. 
the like faux right. metal H&M right. they look, store. They look, I think I might have said that in my piece. I, you they, probably did. I, I needed to refresh. They look like a hot topic ad. You know, it was if 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 even they make they make <laughs> they made hot topic look like the Sex Pistols. Yeah, it was a, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was like a Abercrombie ad. Um, and you know, it was interesting uh, in talking about this in the wider culture. Even I've told this story on this podcast before, so I'll make it very brief, but. Uh, years ago, uh, I saw Metallica play like a 1400 cap room as part of Comic-Con. And at that show, because it was Comic-Con and it was, you know, kind of a place to be, it was like, you know, you look around and there's like the guy that plays Daryl from The Walking Dead. And, and then, of course, like Rob Halford yeah. was there and uh, Brian Posehn. And um, well, I look over when the band starts and I see Bradley Cooper's a few feet away from me. And I thought, I'm as guilty as anyone, I thought, uh, you know, it's a movie star trying to hang out at the Metallica show because that's like the place to be. You know, students here at Comic-Con probably never seen a comic book or heard a metal song. And then the band starts and he is air guitaring the whole set. He knows every word, every drum fill, like a legitimate fan. And I'm like, oh, okay, Bradley Cooper is a legitimate Metallica fan. That's awesome. Yeah, and and then a... uh, you fast forward a year or two, maybe they did a, uh, another underplay uh, charity show here in LA uh, and another at the Fonda theater, another very small venue for them. And um, Bradley Cooper was at that show and I saw him standing back by the soundboard with Lady Gaga and thought, hmm, well, that's cool. And come to find out after the fact, around the time that the Grammy collaboration was happening, apparently it was at that show where after Bradley Cooper's working with Lady Gaga on a movie and apparently he introduced her to Lars at that show and they were all hanging out and it was somehow that's where the, the Grammy thing eventually developed and happened. So oh, that's so interesting. It's kind of neat to see that little through line as a fan, you know, to develop. And uh, yeah, I was at that Grammy performance. Um, it's the only time I've ever attended the Grammys outside of covering you know, the red carpet and the related events. It's the only time I've ever actually gone and been and had a seat. And I was there with my buddy, Josh, who's been on the podcast before Josh, who, uh, you, I'm sure, you know, him. he's created the golden gods awards and uh, of course, know, know him well, Mr. Bernstein, one of my, one of my closest great, pals, great dude. Yeah. Um, we were together and we often talk about how it was like, this must be how sports fans feel when, uh, you know, their favorite team gets to the world series or the Super Bowl and then just, eats it <laughs> you know oh. like as <laughs> we were you know we're so excited and it's like you know they're like our ambassadors for our uh, uh, whole lifestyle you know and then uh and then seeing what was going down right there in the flesh it was just so uh infuriating and disappointing and, and i'll also say and i've said this a lot but uh, you know I, I know people that work at the recording academy who do actually give a shit and care and we're every bit as disappointed and mortified if not more so than josh and i because they know the rep that the Grammys has with metal and they knew what a Jethro Tull size setback <laughs> that debacle was going to be. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's important to remember that these institutions aren't just monolithic entities, that there are humans in them. And, you know, people that are 20 years younger than me <laughs> that are working at the Grammys that, <laughs> that definitely weren't around for the Jethro Tull moment, you know, sure. that, that are super bummed that Metallica got the short end, the shortest straw, as it were. Yeah, perfect choice of words. So, um, 
yeah, it's too, it's too bad because I thought the idea was great. Um, yeah, and also you know I would have I would have consulted with her on wardrobe. For mm. Yes, yeah. it had a very uh, a theatricality to it in a way that in a negative way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she was sort of dressed like a little fangirl groupie. Yeah, and I and I and I was able to see the. Um, there's footage online of the sound check, which I think they I think Metallica might have even put it up because you can the rehearsal because uh, you can actually hear the vocals and um, the stage dive that she did during the performance she does in the exact same spot in the rehearsal for like a couple stage hands and that was kind of a oh man I like I know it's a performance but. Oh, was it the stage dive? Was that calculated? Like that's kind of boring. yeah, you know. Yeah, and I think she, you know, she she could have covered up a little bit and still been sexy as hell. Yeah, agreed. But done it, you know, it just would have had a little more integrity. You know, she can do whatever she wants in her own show. That's what I mean. Like normally saying Lady Gaga and theatricality in the same sentence, I mean it as a compliment. You yeah. Know? Um, you know, like a Marilyn Manson show or Alice Cooper or something, you want it to be theatrical, but um, yeah, this is yeah. different, different theater in a different I just sense. didn't think that, yeah, I appreciate that she, you know, she did the thing with Tony Bennett. Yes. And there, yeah, it's such a contrast because she's dressed, you know, like this classy lady, you know, and, and it works great. And no, she doesn't need to look like that with Metallica, but yeah, you know, she, she could, she, she could have dressed like Lizzie Hale with Metallica. Totally. You know? Totally. Uh, just not like you're in the you know, Motley Crue girls, girls, girls video. Yes. Yes. Exactly. There was so much about the artifice of it that was like a uh, an idiot's version of what metal is. You know? Yeah. We're gonna have fire and people oh. dancing around and Yeah, you know, the fists yeah. waving and yeah. Like, yeah. Okay, why is this so hard to get this right, guys? I know, and I, and those extras on stage all were moving around in a way as though they had never heard the song or heard a rock song or been to a concert, <laughs> you know, it was just yeah. sort of like, hey, we just see you guys to get up there and rock out. Yeah. They didn't help. No, I did enjoy that. Uh, I saw Metallica a couple of times, uh, after that. And each time when they play that song, uh, and Hatfield introduces it as, you know, this time with vocals, <laughs> Ha, ha, ha. That's funny. <laughs> That's pretty great. Um, so I want to ask you before I let you go, um, you know, obviously talking about Metallica and Lulu are, uh, are uh, blights to many fans on the on the Metallica landscape. What have, what have been a couple of the uh, the high points for you and, and you know, momentous Metallica occasions that you've either gotten to experience directly by sort of being around or just as a fan that... I mean, um, certainly the Black Album comes to mind. <laughs> it's like, a, okay, this is a different, they're on another planet from the rest of the world now. Well, the funny thing about that is, uh, you know, I'm not one of these people that thinks the Black Album ruined Metallica, you know. They, and I've had arguments with people about it. Because I, th I, I, th I think... Um, like sound wise, that's one of their not only one of their best sounding albums. I think it's just one of the best sounding albums. Period. Absolutely. Right. And the vocals, like he was at his prime. There, he still sounds great, 
but there he had all the aggression. It was like the perfect blend between, you know, like the the melodies that he's doing now, which I think are terrific, and like the on yeah you know, on the first album he had it was so brutal, it really wasn't melodic enough. Like that band really probably if if they'd never evolved from that sound, they probably wouldn't have uh, blown up the way they did. Agreed. Right, but the Black Album, I can feel like he had that same aggression that he had from the first album, but he had the melody that he would develop later. It was like the perfect blend. Yeah, and I feel like they revisited that a bit with Hardwired because he brought back some of those Black Album yeah. uh, vocal melodies that were absent on Death Magnetic, which was Absolutely. Like, yeah. I was really glad to hear that. Yeah, it's probably my favorite so, thing about it. Yeah, I, I, th- I think it's great. Now, if it were up to me, I, I would have had that be their... Yeah, that would have been their their rumors, you know what I mean, or their, uh, you know, their Joshua Tree or their mm. their big their most commercial album. And then from there, okay, now you can sort of you know, either, you know, get back to more, uh, you know, more straight ahead sounding stuff, or you know, experiment here and there. But I. I wasn't a fan of like the net the period that followed. You know, the whole it just it seemed like okay now we're going to be even more commercial. <laughs> yeah, the whole load <laughs> that worked. Let's go. Let's get it get a step further. Yeah, and and yeah. I and but I, I sympathize with that. though because then at that point you're you're in this whole other position and you're you've established yourself to yeah you know, many people who, who this huge audience that wasn't aware of you before. And that's you know I don't that that's got to be a whole other position to be in. So and I've and I've always argued that they were being as true to themselves in the '90s. Granted, there were internal squabbles about the direction and the image and all that, but I think they were being as true to themselves then as they were in the '80s, in the sense that by the '90s they were listening to Alice in Chains and Soundgarden, and Lars was really into U2 and. Uh, oasis and uh, you know there were there were other things that were happening that were turning them on both in their lives sort of experientially and musically and for them to have made records in the 90s like the ones they made in the 80s i think would have been false uh in a sense and that's usually my sort of my take on the whole load reload era in general and i would also argue and i'd be curious for your opinion um there are once you separate it from all of that and really dig in, there are some undeniably great songs to be found from that era. Um, sure. It's For just, sure. it's not as immediate as, uh, you know, some of the stuff before and after. Yeah. And I was, you know, so I, I, I'm a defender of the black album and I saw them oh, a couple years ago. Uh, Testament actually played on the bill with them for the first time. And for the first time and, ever, which is so bizarre. That's yeah. insane. How did I oh, not yeah. know that? <laughs> That's recent. They didn't, even, they didn't either. We were like, we, we yeah, we were talking to to James, and he didn't believe it. That seems that like, seems no, crazy. Of course, we yeah. That seems crazy. When James? When? When did we play? believe me? <laughs> we <laughs> were, yeah, you guys knew you didn't. <laughs> uh, but it was amazing. Like, just, um, well, first of all, like, into, there are, you know, I just, I love, they're all, each of those guys, they're their own guy. 
Yes. Like to really have, you know, separate from this huge thing they're a part of. It's almost like the Kiss personas, but in real life. <laughs> like, yeah. you really do have, like, the Star Man and the Demon and the Cat Man. And, you know, like... <laughs> yeah, yeah. And just, I don't know, just off, off stage, you can just have, a gr- you know, these great conversations with, you know, it's, it's just, it's James, or it's Lars, or Kirk, or Robert. You know what I mean? And it's totally separate from... Yeah, you know, I don't. You know, it's not the guy. You know, of Metallica, they're just really uh, great guys to talk to, and they they all have their individual personalities. And you you just almost forget. You know, if you're having a conversation with them backstage, when they're on stage, it's it's just unbelievable. Um, and we got to watch them from side of the stage. At one point, I, I think Robert saw us. We were sort of uh, way off to the side. And he talked to one of the security guards and like basically came and just pulled us up to the front. Yeah, the little group of guys I was with. It was re- really awesome. guys and girls. And uh, we watched right from the side. And it was just a German stadium, stadium full. And it's, it's just amazing. I mean, it's just they, they really have like you know springsteen u2 level hugeness but metal and they've just figured out a way to do it that really makes sense and even the songs that i may not have dug that much from you know some of the later albums just hearing them play it live and with that sound system it was just unbelievable yeah and i also think a lot some of those songs work well you know, I wasn't really a fan of the song Fuel, for example. Oh, yeah. But I love hearing it live because it really serves a great, uh, you know, it serves a great purpose in terms of dynamics in their set. Yeah, you that's know? a perfect example. And there's a few songs from that era that they, that they did. And, like, you know, I never liked this song before, <laughs> but I'm really digging it now. Yeah. And the idea that you can have a band, like you said, that's Springsteen or, or Madonna or U2 size uh, that, you know, once released a 12-minute Merciful Fate medley on a record that went multi-platinum. I know. I know. It's, a, it's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. So, you know, I just have, you know, just, you know, beyond, you know, respect for what those guys are doing and how they're they're able to just keep it exciting. Right. So where was the show when you guys finally played together? Uh, this was in um, Munich. In Munich, okay. Yeah, they're right, yeah, there actually Sunday, two yeah. shows. Um, but the show was called uh, Rock AM Ring. Okay, sure, yeah. Yeah, wow. That's a big festival. And that's, that's so great. So yeah, that's crazy. So you guys had never been on a festival bill together? It's a, it's a, a Monsters a, of Rock or? Yeah. Wow. Download? It, yeah, I think it was a, a shout out and. We hung backstage, and uh, yeah, I've bumped into all of them at different times. Sure, you know, at other shows or um, Robert, yeah, you know, even j- jammed with him when uh, my trio was on tour with Rodrigo and Gabriela, and he was a, a special guest. Oh right, yeah, because he, he sat he sat in with them a lot, and they've done Metallica songs, and yeah, so, yeah. Right. So we did a little jam with him that was amazing, and. Yeah, I've run into the guys, but you know, just that—that that was uh, the the first time. Yeah, 
seeing them in a long time and just seeing how they you know they've refined what they do and just how you know they they've yeah, you know, just not everybody can be a stadium fan. I think I saw an interview with, um, you know, Michael Stipe from REM, mm-hmm. and he said, they became a stadium band. And he said, "We're not a stadium band. <laughs> like some bands are meant to be stadium band." Yeah, Guns and Roses. Yeah, you yeah. too, for sure. And they love and he he just he was talking about rem specifically and it's just you know it didn't they did it for a while but to keep it's very hard to keep keep that going and just it suits some bands better better than others and i think you know metallica they've you know proven they've that they you know they're the great stadium band of of metal and you know of rock period you know what's interesting is uh, is hearing you say that, having seen Metallica do these underplay situations, and then having seen them, you know, most recently at the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, and, and then talking about REM and thinking about how much better REM is in a theater than a, than in a stadium. I, I can't picture U two in a club. Right. And I love and I love Absolutely. I love the old U two records. Even you know, um, I mean, I love and that's no disrespect to what they're doing now, but I mean, I love. Uh, you know, everything kind of up to and including the Joshua Tree. Uh, yeah. And yet, yeah, I can't. And I know they even have sort of punk roots. And but yeah, yeah. I, as I was listening to you say that, I'm like, I cannot picture them in a small room. Right, right. It would be weird. <laughs> yeah, whereas yeah, Metallica, so they're, I think they're even better now than stadiums because they got, they've sort of got in touch with their club side. Yeah. Maybe not that they ever lost it, but yeah, they've just, they've done so much. No, I know what you mean. Like, Saw them at the Golden Gods mm-hmm. as well. It was this was a little that was a little before this. Uh, that was great. Uh, they did the whole um, series of shows at the Fillmore. Yeah, I watched I all missed, of those on YouTube. Yeah, I wish I could have gone. But, yeah, first and um, they did the uh, they did a show at uh, one of my favorite record stores at Berkeley, uh, Rasputin Records. Right. Yeah. That was a so, record store day, and it was like a, and they did like all old songs too, right? It was all like Kill 'Em All, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. So they're really in touch with like that side of things as well. So I just I think um, it's just so rare for a band to be able to do that and to have all this history and to you know go from being this sort of underground phenomenon to this enormous like larger than life, um, you know, brand name and survive. We, my, my buddy and I at, at, the, at the Rose Bowl, we were counting every time we saw the $10 Metallica shirt from Target. Because oh, yeah. it's very recognizable. Um, sure. And uh, we just, we had a fun little game where we're walking around we're like, there's one, there's one, there's one. <laughs> it was just... Just bought the shirt at Target, ten bucks. Came to the show. Right. I mean, it's... they have them at H and M now. Yeah. yeah, crazy. So crazy. Yeah, from from the key you know, from the Keystone I... Berkeley to the to the Rose. Yeah, <laughs> I know. It's it's just so funny. If, you know, sometimes um, I'm not going to say I'm a regular H and M shopper, but you know what? <laughs> There's they make they make a, a a really good stage shirt. <laughs> oh, I I own some H and M. Simple black. There's yeah, some of my closet. Yeah. They make some good stuff, so I'll, I'll go in there and then I'll see their 
yeah, you know, some article item with the Metallica logo on it. So surreal. Hi guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Hey dudes. Yeah, you guys are everywhere now, but it's yeah. awesome. That's incredible. Yeah, I've had the opportunity over the years to interview Kirk uh, multiple times, actually, um, and he's always great as advertised. Um, I've gotten to meet and hang around Robert a few times in different situations, and I got to interview James once. Um, and interestingly enough, Lars is the one I've I've uh, yet to encounter. So, oh, you got hoping yeah, to do got that. Yeah, he's a, he's an amazing person. He's just you know incredibly incredibly creative i think he would have i think they yeah they should study him you know <laughs> yes yeah hey no lars no metallica i'm a huge huge believer and outspoken defender of that idea there's and also i i think like you know no matter what he did he would have found he would have been creative and done it differently and i think uh yeah he, he watching his creativity has just really really been fascinating even though you know there's there's moments that are controversial that some might agree not agree with, such as the you know the whole Lulu thing. Um, but I think, yeah, that's a side of that's an important side of what he does is sort of yeah breaking rules and not yeah. being afraid to do it. Provoke and inspire, you know. Yeah, like, yeah, and dis- I think disruptive. You know, the, yeah, the same creativity that brought us Lulu also brought us Master of Puppets much earlier. Amen same fearlessness so and the fear and the fearlessness that got him uh derided by the entire culture during the napster thing uh absolutely proved to be prescient and uh you know jamie josta actually sells a t-shirt that says lars was right yeah (laughs) which is right amazing yeah i always recommend people go go watch on youtube uh lars and chuck d which tons of respect for Chuck D, of course, but it's Lars and Chuck D on Charlie Rose circa about 2000, 2001. It's like an hour long episode and they're debating Napster and everything Lars says came true yep. and everything Chuck says now in retrospect sounds ridiculous. Yeah, and Chuck's <laughs> awesome. Man. And he's awesome. Yeah, tons of respect <laughs> to him, you know. But And that was the, de- and certainly he was, the, the opinions he was giving were the prevailing opinions at the time. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's it's interesting to watch it now and to hear everything Lars was saying back then. Oh yeah, and I remember I I had grown up in this era of you know like they they were the government was threatening to ban heavy metal or at mm-hmm. least like tamp down on it. You know, there was the whole commission of Washington Housewives, you know, yeah. the PMRC, PMRC. Which found its way to a Megadeth song. Uh huh. <laughs> and we, you know, it was just amazing. Yeah, because I. Re- remember that and then here i am watching this senate hearing and there's lars <laughs> <laughs> shaking hands with orrin hatch and earning his respect and uh, just like they 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 loved him so wild it just won him over you know he just it was totally amazing and suddenly it, i think that was a defining point for Metal beyond the whole debate about the um, file sharing, which you know he, he I think it's safe to say he he was proven right. But suddenly, you know, here's a, a guy from a metal band, yeah, you know, speaking very eloquently and passionately in front of the U.S. Senate, and I just I don't know. I thought to me that was kind of a defining moment. 
Yeah. And uh, to bring it right into modern, uh, the modern lens, an immigrant. Yeah. <laughs> Someone with dual citizenship and multi-languages. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I told him that, too. I discussed it with him. Yeah, just like how awesome I think that is. <laughs> That's fucking great. Like, to me, it's, it's no big deal. Yeah, of course. You know, it, you know, nobody was going to do anything. And, of course, this is going to happen. And, you know, but I just – but I'm, I'm just thinking you – know, like if if any of us, anybody from any metal band, like got put in that position, we're gonna go speak to a Senate subcommittee, or you know that group of senators that he spoke to. Like, <laughs> I, I would, I would, would yeah. I mean, maybe now I, I I could do it, but at that time, I mean that that's like incredibly intimidating. Yeah, it's wild. Right. Much, much respect to him and also to D. Snyder at the PMRC. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, D, <laughs> D yeah, killed D, it. Yeah. And D, you know, he, he was, you know, at Zappa too. I mean, oh, that of was. Of course. Yeah. Uh, yeah. D, D was a little more like. Was, what they, little, I love D, but yeah, he was a, a little, little more like a, what they would have expected. Yeah. Whereas yeah. Lars was more sort of like, hey, I can navigate seamlessly in this world and still. Yeah. Went across. Like, yeah. Like yeah, you guys respect business. This is about business. We're business people, and he sort of he earned. D, you know, D, I think played a necessary role at that time for that situation. But I think Lars did the unthinkable. Like he actually earned their respect. Yeah, that's pretty. It's, it's pretty awesome. Pretty powerful, man. Rules. <laughs> that's oh, well, great, great perspective and context, which I knew you would bring. And when I first conceptualized of this podcast if you know several months back you were one of the first names i wrote down on my pad oh, so uh, glad man. so glad to be a part of it had to have it's on yeah great. and i'd love to have you back sometime because there's i'd love to come back to discuss so yeah killer well uh dude um don't be a stranger and thanks again absolutely likewise catch testament on tour all summer across america with anthrax behemoth Lamb of God, and Slayer on what Slayer has said will be their final tour. And head over to alexskolnick.com to keep up with all of Alex's activities, to learn more about his book, From Geek to Guitar Hero, read his blog, check out all of his tour dates, check out his what kind of gear he plays, look at photos, look at him on the cover of lots of guitar magazines. There's a lot of cool stuff there on his site. And I also recommend following him on Twitter. He's one of my favorite people to follow on Twitter. He always has insightful and often clever things to say well that does it for this episode of speak and destroy you guys have been great and as always i've been ryan j downing